Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Following Jesus is a strange thing. In John 15, he tells us that while we live in this world, we don't belong to this world. That this is not our home. We think different. We talk different. We act different. We have different values and priorities. Because unlike the world around us, we are not living for this life. We are leveraging this life for the kingdom that is to come. Because our hope, our joy, our purpose, what fuels and motivates us, what drives us as the people of God is not the things of this world. It's the things of God. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to be different, to stand out, to be unlike the world around us. See, Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It is visible in every direction for miles. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And all throughout the gospel, we see this repeated theme that there is no such thing as a ninja Christian hides in the shadows and blends into our environment. It moves undetected. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to be a light that shines in the darkness. But every day, we face the temptation to dim that light so that we can fit in, so that we can blend in. Because blending in is easier. Blending in is safer. As the old adage says, the nail that sticks out gets hammered. And we've learned that when you stand out, when you're different, you can get attacked. You can get criticized. You can get mocked. You can get rejected. You can get judged. It creates conflict and discomfort, and it's just unpleasant. And so there is this every day, this daily temptation that we have to fight to just kind of go with the flow. And to just fit in with the people around us so that we don't rock the boat and cause trouble. Because it makes life easier. We aren't called to fit in. And church, if the only reason that the people in our lives know we're Christians is because we tell them, there's a problem. That's what this new series is about. It's about how we can follow the example of Jesus so that we can be an example for Jesus. It's how we can, as followers of Jesus, be different from the world around us and live in a way that stands out and draws attention to who he is, not for our attention, but for his glory. So what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to study, we're going to unpack, and we're going to camp out in one verse. I'm going to spend six months in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to spend six weeks in one verse. And you know one of the greatest things about this verse is? There's not a single list of impossible to pronounce names anywhere in it. Right. 
so I can go back to pretending that I am a somewhat intelligent human being. It's a great fiction. So for the next six weeks, we're going to study 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. So if you've got a Bible or Bible app, you want to turn there, you've got a little bookmark, you might want to put it there because we're going to be there for a while. But before we get into the text, let me set the stage for you a little bit. 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul to one of his young disciples, a guy named Timothy. So after his conversion, Paul starts as a persecutor of the church. He was very much against the Christian movement, and then he has an encounter with Jesus. He surrenders his life to Jesus, and he becomes one of the most predominant leaders in the early church and the greatest champions of the gospel. And so Paul, over the course of his ministry, went for what we refer to as missionary journeys, where he would travel around the known world, going from town to city, preaching the gospel, and planting churches. On his first missionary journey, Paul meets this young man in the town of Lystra named Timothy. Timothy was likely about 16 years old at the time. As a 16-year-old kid who we would barely entrust with the responsibility of operating a motor vehicle on his own, Timothy already had a reputation for his godly character all the way to Iconum. Wow, that's a, I have no idea where that is. Iconum is 40 miles away from Lystra. What that means is when you traveled in the first century, right, no cars yet, so if you wanted to go somewhere, you used your feet. And you would traverse in traveling about 20 miles in a day. So what that means is that Timothy, as a 16-year-old kid, had a reputation for his godly character two days' travel from his home. He is an impressive young man. Paul meets him, is impressed by him, and invites Timothy to come along with him on these missionary journeys and be his disciple. And Timothy is excited because Paul is kind of a big deal. He's one of the greatest minds in the first century, one of the biggest leaders in the early church. And Timothy is excited. Young Timothy is excited to sit at the feet of Paul and learn from Paul and understand and grow under Paul's leadership. And what Paul liked to do is he would go from place to place, he would preach the gospel, he would start a church, and then he would move on. Well, sometimes when Paul needed to move on to the next town, the church that he had established there was not quite ready to stand on its own two legs. And so what Paul would do is he would leave one of his disciples behind to be the pastor of that church until it was ready to stand on its own. The three primary ones he uses are Timothy, Titus, and Silas, Timothy being the main one. So all Timothy wants to do is study from and learn from Paul, and Paul keeps leaving him places and going off without him. Because Paul trusts Timothy, and he gives him some really difficult assignments. First in Berea, then Athens, Thessalonica, and he sends him to Corinth. Corinth is a really messed up place. Uh, it is actually from the first century, probably the closest thing to American culture that we have. It's a market economy. It's a land of opportunity where anybody could be successful if they worked hard. But there is a whole lot of depravity in Corinth. In fact, the Greek language has a word that was used to describe people having sex that was Corinthiazomai. And it literally means to act like a Corinthian. So you can imagine how bad the town has to be when they name the act after the city. And Paul leaves young Timothy in a city like that to lead a church. 
That is how much Paul trusts Timothy. And then, when he gets to move on from Corinth, Paul sends him to Ephesus, which is the first century version of a megachurch. So now young Timothy is leading one of the biggest churches in the world. And Paul writes him this letter to instruct him and encourage him so that he would be effective in his leadership. So what he says, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Do not any, let anyone despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Leading when you are young is a very unique challenge. Because those who have more life experience than you tend to assume that they know better and understand the world better because they've seen more of it. Sometimes that's true. But it can make leading them a little bit more difficult because they're less likely to just take your idea, take what you're trying to do and follow it. Especially in a society like the first century where being an elder was so incredibly respected and revered that simply being older that you were worthy of a great deal of honor in that culture. I started in ministry when I was 20 years old. Hadn't even graduated college yet, and I became the lead pastor of a church, most of whom were old enough to be my grandparents, most of whom had been Christians for longer than I had been alive, and many of whom had grandchildren that were almost as old as I was. And that created some challenges and some obstacles in leading. You see, the thing is not that older people don't respect or won't respect younger people. It's that with age comes with it a certain default credibility that when you're young, you don't get. All the respect, all the credibility, all the trust when you're young is something that you have to earn and you have to start from scratch. The challenge is you don't have enough life experience to do everything right out of the gate. And every time you make a mistake, it's that much harder for people to trust you and to offer you that credibility. So when you're young and you're leading, you've got to learn to don't act your age because your age is just wrong every time. And so Paul writes this letter to young Timothy teaching him how to gain credibility and earn respect with his people so that he can be more effective in his leadership. But here's the thing. This is not Timothy's first ministry. Remember the list, it's his fifth ministry. He's already been in some tough assignments. Now he's in a mega church. He's got some experience under his belt. But when Paul met Timothy, he's 16. He's not still 16. Weird thing about time is it passes. He is now older. Likely by the time he is in Ephesus, which is where he was when Paul writes in this letter, Timothy is in his early to mid-30s. See, the word that's used here to say young is used to describe anyone under the age of 40. Because in this culture... Anyone under the age of 40 classified as being young and was not entitled to a certain degree of respect that came from being older. <clears throat> the other thing that's worth noting here is the nature of the command that Paul gives. Look at the wording of it. <laughs> Do not let anyone look down on you. Do not let anyone despise you. Here's my question. <laughs> How is Timothy supposed to obey this command? 
It's not like the dude has mind control. How is he supposed to control how other people think and feel about it? Is he going to get up and be like, hi, you guys can't look down on me because I'm young because nah, 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 nah. Like, that's not going to help. Tried it, didn't work. <laughs> What's he supposed to do? Because you can't just demand that people respect you. You can't demand that people trust you. You don't get to just demand that people offer you a certain degree of credibility. But what you can do is live your life in a way that demands respect. You can live in your, your life in a way that demonstrates godly character and maturity so that people who look at you and they see how you live cannot help but respect you. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to. That's what Paul is calling all of us to. To live in a manner that is worthy of respect. To compose ourselves, to conduct ourselves with so much godly character that people who have no inclination to respect us, the people who have no reason to like us or want to agree with us, see our lives and they cannot help but respect us. See, on the surface, this seems like a command, like an instruction for Paul giving it to a leader in the church for how to be a more effective leader, which naturally leads us to go, well, well, I'm not a leader, so he's not talking to me. Respectfully, you are wrong on both fronts. The message of the gospel is simple. If you are alive, you are a leader. It is impossible to follow Jesus without leading people. Remember what Jesus says to Peter, Andrew, James, and John when he calls them off their boats? Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. You may not lead thousands. You may not lead hundreds. You may not lead dozens. But if you follow Jesus, you will be a leader of people because you can't do one without the other happening. Additionally, even if it wasn't the natural byproduct of following Jesus, it is the direct command of Jesus where in Matthew 28 he tells us to go make disciples of all nations and that whole thing. So by nature and by our purpose, we are called to lead other people. So in Paul or anywhere in Scripture you see an address to leaders, it is absolutely talking to you. Because this is not just for Timothy. This is for the church. This is for all of us to understand how we can live following the example of Jesus so that we can be an example for Jesus. And so what Paul does here is he lays out five key areas from which we can demonstrate how we are different from the world, from which we can show our godly character and maturity and live as an example for Jesus. And if you remember, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, hey, you know, what's the most important command in the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, the whole law is summed up in this. The entirety of the Christian life is summed up in 1 Timothy 4.12. If we live out these five things, we can know that we are faithfully living out the commission of Jesus and following him in a way that honors him. Speech and conduct. These are the tangible, visible aspects of life that demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit as he moves and molds and grows us. 
This is the evidence that people will see. This is what they're going to look at when they look at your life and go, wow, there's something different about them. That is your speech and your conduct. Love and faith, these are the foundational elements of the Christian faith that motivate and fuel all that we do. See, the speech and the conduct, those are external behaviors. They're the surface level. They have to come from somewhere. And so the speech and the conduct that we have that brings glory to Jesus does so because they are rooted in our love for Jesus and our faith in him. And so that is what fuels that difference of behavior. That is what fuels that. So when the person at work is driving you crazy and you want to use a bunch of four-letter words at them, The thing that motivates you to clean up that speech and to speak to them with love and not wrath that they may or may not deserve is your love for Jesus. It's your faith in Jesus. So love and grace, or love and faith, they fuel our speech and our conduct. And then there's purity, which is not just about sexuality. It is about that. But purity also carries with it the idea of being unmixed. So it oftentimes happens, right, as Christians, as we put one foot in the world, we put one foot in the kingdom of God, and when we're at church, we put all our weight on this foot, and then when we go out of the church, we put all our weight back to this foot. That way we kind of can go wherever. We feel like we're, you know, grounded in reality because we can kind of bounce back and forth between worlds. That's not purity. Purity is having an allegiance to Jesus that is undivided. Purity is being all about Jesus and all for Jesus. <clears throat> well, my wife and I have a son who's three years old now, which is a wonderful adventure that involves a lot less sleep than I expected. Being a parent is a crazy thing. And all God's parents said, hey, there it is. Right, because you start with this little human that is completely dependent on you for everything. And their whole life is eat, poop, sleep, repeat. <laughs> and they do that, needing you for everything just long enough for you to get used to it. And then all of a sudden you blink, and they're not little. And now you have like this sort of mini person walking around and talking. Constantly observing and absorbing everything. And you start learning things that you say because you start hearing them come out of a three-year-old's mouth. You're like, where did that? Oh, that's from mom. <laughs> we went to visit Erica's family for Thanksgiving. We're staying in a hotel. And uh, hotels are not really designed for three-year-olds, right? Because they, they offer you a pack-and-play or a pull-out couch that turns into a bed. Well. He's not big enough for the pull-out couch. He's way too big for the pack-and-play. So we explained to Rowan, okay, you're going to sleep in the bed with us, but here's the deal, bud. This is a special occasion. Don't get used to this. This is not happening when we get home. So we explain it. We go home. We get back into our normal routine. Everything is good. Two weeks ago, he wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I go in there, and I'm, I'm super functional at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, bud, what's up? And he's sitting in his bed with his light on. Daddy... I'm going to sleep with you. No, bud, you're a big boy. You sleep in your big boy bed. No, dad. It's a special occasion. <laughs> it's not a special occasion. It's a Wednesday. 
And so now, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm arguing with my 3-year-old about what constitutes as a special occasion, and I'm wondering what has happened to my life. Because the thing that you learn very quickly with, as a parent is that you have to be careful about everything that you say and everything that you do because they're going to hear it, they're going to store it for later, and that chicken's going to come back to roost when you don't want it to. We so quickly understand this as parents, and yet we so, are so slow to understand it as people. Church, it is not just your children that are watching, that are absorbing that are imitating. Everyone is. And when you live as a Christian, your life is always on display. Everywhere you go, everything you do, there is someone who is watching. Unless you live in a cave and there are no other human beings around to watch you, there's someone watching. From how you talk to and treat your server at a restaurant, which, if I could just be real honest with you, is typically abysmal, I've worked in restaurants from different states ever since I turned 16 years old. The one thing that every restaurant, every server I've ever talked to says the worst shift to work, Sunday morning. Post-church crowd is the rudest, least patient, cheapest crowd that you'll ever find. That's the reputation we have outside of here. We're the cheaper ones. The same people are super nice on Friday, but after church, they are the worst. People are watching from the rants that you make on Facebook to the things you comment on, the things you like, the way you present yourself, they are watching and they are drawing conclusions about what Jesus is like based on what they see in you. So Jesus calls us to be an example so that through our lives, people will see him and be glorified by him. Jesus calls us to live for him. And to be different. Not to blend in, not to act like the world, but to be different. And there is nothing more powerful as a demonstration of the gospel and the power that God has like seeing the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the life of someone else. And so when we live this out, church, when we follow these instructions, when we devote ourselves to these things to become an example, our life becomes a testimony to the glory of God and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what draws people attention. And that is what gets them interested. Because they see how God has changed you. We are called unequivocally to be different. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, don't live like the world, don't follow the world, don't look like the world. Follow Jesus. Because here's the deal. Either you will influence this world with the grace of the gospel, or you will be influenced by this world. So what is it that shapes your thinking, your attitude? your values? What is it that determines how you feel or how you perceive a certain issue? Is it what you read? What you see on the news? What you hear from everybody around you and your friends? Is it how you feel? What you think? What determines how you view an issue or thing? 
following Jesus means we surrender all of that to Jesus. It means our attitude is set by Jesus. Our feelings are set by Jesus. Our thoughts are set by Jesus. It means that we look at the world through the lens of Jesus. And so whatever issue comes up, whatever the thing is, we're not determining how we feel about it based on what's popular in culture or what everybody else around us is saying or what seems reasonable or logical from that perspective. We're seeing it through the lens of Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. It means that every aspect of us is surrendered to him and anything in us that does not fit with him gets put to death. Because Jesus has given us the newness of life. First John chapter 2, verse 4. Says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. John's really gentle and soft the way he says things. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. But an old commandment that you have had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. There's this theme throughout Scripture. John brings it up a lot. But it's a recurring message. Jesus doesn't care what you call yourself. He didn't invite us to a name change. He invited us to follow him. Following Jesus means walking the way that Jesus walked. It means following the example that he set. And the more you follow the example of Jesus, the more you will start to look like Jesus. And the more you start to look like Jesus, the less you will look like the world around you. Because the world and Jesus look absolutely nothing alike in any way. No one is ever going to confuse these two things. So Jesus calls us to follow him. And by calling us to follow him, he is calling us to be different. And when we focus on our speech, our conduct, our love, our faith, and our purity, our lives become a testament to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And we begin to demonstrate to the world who Jesus is so they may see him in us. See, living for Jesus is not about beating people over the head with your Bible like some weird spiritual game of whack-a-mole. It's about being a light that shines in the darkness. It's about being an example for who Jesus is, imitating the example that he sets, not just as individuals, but as a community. There's no way to emphasize the importance of this enough. Everything that Jesus commands us to do, all the instructions he gives, they're not just for us as the single person. They are for that, but they're also for us as the corporate body of Jesus coming together and working together and growing together as we spur one another on in pursuit of Jesus. This is for all of God's people. 
I want us to be a church that sets an example for Jesus. I want us to be a lighthouse that shines in this community, spreading the light of the gospel in every direction so that people from every walk of life and every background and every experience can see the light that Jesus gives because there are people who are trapped in darkness and what we don't understand, what we so often overlook is how incredibly freeing it is to know him and to find our worth in him. Because the movement of the gospel is a movement that is for all people. It does not matter if you are black or white, young or old, male or female, tall or short, strong or weak, smart, or your intelligence is closer to mine. It doesn't matter because we are all one in Jesus. And there are so many people who go through this life feeling that their sense of worth and value is based on their performance or what other people say about them or things that have happened to them or mistakes that they've made because they don't know that their value is in the blood that Jesus has shed for them because no matter what they've been through, Jesus said, you're worth it. There are people who are living without that who are trapped in the darkness and the despair of their sin because they don't know that we all have equal value in the eyes of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is what our, our kingdom campaign is all about. Last week we had our commitment Sunday. After months of prayer and preparation, prayer nights, vision casting, studying through the book of Nehemiah with all its crazy names, I tell you, it's a little nerve-wracking to finally get to that point where you put it out there. This is the chance to see how people respond because we've known from the beginning that this thing is some big, audacious vision that we could not ever hope to accomplish without the hand of God at work. We didn't want to do what we can do. We want to do what God can do. And so we cast this big, impossible vision for what we can do with this place. You never know how people are going to respond. You know that God is faithful, but you don't always know what people are going to do. In our first week, we had 45 commitment cards turned in from individuals and families committing to over $255,000 towards our kingdom campaign. One week, the first step in the race over a quarter of a million dollars to invest in the vision that God has called us to and the work that he is leading us to. It's unbelievably exciting. And we are so thrilled to be a part of the work that God is doing here. But in addition to the 255,000 that was committed, we've also had 15,000 already given. I want to be clear here about our heart in this. Because it's easy in campaigns like this to get it twisted up. For those of you who've been here for a while, you know this. For those of you who are more new to us, we haven't passed plates in almost two years. We haven't done an offering in almost two years. We don't do fundraisers. We don't sell stuff because the last thing we want to do is feel like one of those places that's always reaching into your wallet or purse. We don't care about money. It's paper, lights on fire like anything else. It's useless. It's meaningless. We care about ministry. We care about the buildings. We care about the people. All of this is about people. 
So we've been blessed with 25 acres of land in the middle of the fastest growing community in the country. Every day, more and more people are moving into our backyard and we have greater opportunities to minister. And what we want to do is more ministry. We want to be able to reach more people and connect more people and grow more people. We want to be a church that is all about one more. That we would reach one more and serve one more and love one more and grow one more and see one more surrender to Jesus until there is no one left in this community to hear the gospel because they all already have it. Church, we want to be a place that never stops showing the gospel to people, that never stops helping people grow in it, never stops serving them and loving them. We want to be a place that transforms this community till the only way that we can even minister to the gospel that someone hasn't heard it is for us to go outside of our community because we've already reached everybody here. One. It starts with one. One more. And that one more is never enough. We're not looking to build our church. We're build, looking to build the kingdom. We're not looking to glorify ourselves. We're looking to glorify Jesus. Because there are people all around us who live in a dark pit of despair because of sin. And they're shackled to it. And they're trapped in it. And they don't know the joy and the hope and the freedom that comes from having the light of life because they don't have it. How can we who have it hoard it? How can we who have the light of life keep it to ourselves when we know there are people all around us who need it? Because here's the thing, church. None of us were born into light. You may have been born in a Christian home. You may have grown up in a Christian home, but you were not born into the light. Every one of us knows what it's like to live in that darkness. Every one of us knows what it, lives, what it feels like to be trapped and shackled in that pit of despair, believing that this world, this broken shell of a thing, is all there is. You know the pain. You know the rejection. You know the loneliness. You remember what it feels like to be in the dark because Jesus came in and he rescued you from it. He delivered us from the darkness. He delivered us from that despair. And he pulled us into the light of life. And Jesus, who is the light of the world, then transfers that light to us. And he says, now you go be the light of the world. He says, nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bowl. He says, you put it on a stand so that it gives light to everybody in the house. Because of Jesus, you have received the light. And Jesus' command to us is don't just be a light receiver. Be a light bringer. Follow the example of Jesus by taking the light of life, of love, and of faith into the world that so desperately needs it and shine the light of the gospel into the dark pits of despair in people's lives that they might be freed from them. That's what we're called to do that we would follow the example of Jesus and every day be more like him. So this morning, I can't think of a better way to put that thought in our heads than by taking communion together. By taking time to focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done by the sacrifice that he made on our behalf.
So if you didn't get them on the way in, there's tables in the back here that have the little single-serve communion things. I'm going to invite you to, to take those together with us in just a moment here as we, as we remember that our mission, our purpose in this life is not just to live through it. It's to become more like Jesus every single day. And the symbol of communion, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, the symbol of what we're about to do is a reminder of who we are called to be. Because when you take the body and the blood into yourself, you're bringing Jesus into yourself. That you would be a little less you and a little more him. So I'm going to pray and we're going to invite you to take the bread together. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you that you loved us even in our darkness, that you sent your son to die on a cross, to have his body broken because you deemed us worthy. God, I pray that as we take this element, as we remember the sacrifice of your son, that you would stir in us our desire to become more like him. Let's take the bread together. After Jesus broke bread with his disciples, he took the cup. So this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Whenever you partake of it, do so in remembrance of me. That we are remembering. Every time we take communion, we are remembering all that Jesus has done for us. So let's take the cup together. Heavenly Father, there are no words in this world that can capture the praise that you are deserving of. There is no life that we can live that will ever be worthy of you. God, my prayer is that you would create in us a hunger for more of you, that we would thirst for you, that we would pursue you and consume as much of you as we can get into our lives and that we would never be sated with what we have but that our life would be a journey every day seeking to be more like you and have more of you. Let your grace and your love spur us on to be examples in our community, in our world for you. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for grace. Amen. Let's worship together.